uh, went well. So she also had, had another surgery on her on her wrist for carpal tunnel syndrome. Um, so that's that happened as well. And she's on the mend. Um, Bill is uh, um, just working on trying to figure out uh, how to live an unhurried life, an unstructured life, uh, and that's and that's hard for him. So um, yeah, but he, otherwise he's doing well. Thanks for thanks for asking. Um, so we're going to be in John chapter one. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to John chapter one. We're going to be reading uh, the first uh, eighteen verses. <coughs> The common lecture usually starts off every year with this as the gospel reading. And so I thought it would be appropriate for us here uh, in the second week of, or the second or third week of January, uh, for us to start there as well. This is God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear about the light that all may believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and and, uh, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, of man, excuse me, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was the one whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. I love this verse. This is like, if you wanted to take the entirety of the Old Testament and New Testament and truncate it and squish it down into 18 verses, this is it. This explains everything. Now, to be fair, um, it's a lot. If you've ever uh, nerded out on science stuff like me or astronomy like I do, I get a a giant kick out of things like quasars and pulsars and and stars. I I, I mean, I was geeked on Christmas Day to go and watch the launch of the James Webb Telescope. I don't know about you, but this is like a 30-year-old uh, concept of a telescope that is unlike any other telescope in the entire world ever been made, the most advanced telescope ever. And they put this thing on a rocket and blast it into space, and then it goes a million miles into space on the other side of the moon to a thing called L2, deploys this sun shield so that it can peer in the darkness and not have any uh, issues with heat or light or anything, and can just stare out into space. Sometimes you've seen this sort of stare from your children, maybe, you know, when they're just looking at you as if you're telling them something and they're like, just, they're not even there. No, this is that kind of staring that is like this observable staring and it's looking for infrared light that is this heat signature that shows us the, the farthest back of when things all began. 
so nerded out on that because it has this insight into the universe, hopefully. And it's weighty. It's like a black hole, which is just this smallest, the smallest, densest of densest object in the universe so much that its gravity pulls everything into it. So this verse is very much like that. It is so dense. It is so um, packed with meaning. And I'll be honest, in the next 20 minutes, there's no way that I'm going to be able to unpack everything in here. But I think there's something that's overarching that needs to be explained about this. And it's this. This is what we as Christians should be known for. This gives us the very thing, the foundation, the most important thing about being a believer in God. Now, many of you can, uh, if I was to ask you, what does it mean to be Christian? And maybe many of you would give me ideas of like, well, we should believe in Christ and we should receive his forgiveness, that sort of thing. But uh, uh, many of you will give us rules and regulations of like, well, don't do this, don't do that. But what is the nexus? What is the, the very one thing that, we, uh, that makes us a believer? Here's what I want to say. There's a few things that are, I noticed in this passage that I think are, are worthwhile uh, taking a look at. One, like I said, it's the sheer density of the verses. Clearly, books upon books upon books have been written uh, and are being written to unpack the very deep meanings of this dense passage. But it's like trying to you know, describe the Grand Canyon in 100 words or less. You can't. There's no way. But still, it's there. There's no way to, you know, adequately or accurately unpack all that John says in a single sermon. But it seems to me that we ought to, instead of unpacking it so much to know intellectually, but it ought to be something we experience, something we absorb, something we just bask in the glory of. If you've ever come over um, uh, Arapahoe Road going west, uh, from like where Grandview High School is and you get to the crest of a hill and you see those mountains, especially now when they're covered in snow and there's just a glory to it. Now, none of us in our right minds go, hmm, the geological formations that I see before me are packed with all manner of sedimentary things covered in ice crystals and some sort of, you know, uh, trees growing to cause greenness. None of us do that. What we do do instead is just bask in it. We glory in it. We just go, oh, best thing ever. Likely when we see the sunset, we don't go, oh, I see that our star has faded into the distance as the earth is rotating around it in its seasons. No, we go, man, look at that orange and blue. Not Broncos, but amazing glory. Wow. In the same way, I think John's uh, prologue here to his gospel is very much something we ought to just bask in, glory in, something we might just sit and be in awe and wonder in. The second thing I noticed about this is that John's style in this beginning, what he's writing is very much like Genesis. If we go back into Genesis, we find where he says, in the beginning. Here we have the same thing, in the beginning. John is, in a sense, writing the prologue or writing the cre- new creation narrative. He is writing this uh, amazing thing that says, this is what was going on before the things that were going on became the things that were going on. In the beginning, God created in the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1 says. It gives us the what, but John here describes the who behind it. The word. 
in the Greek it's called the Logos. But really what it means to you and I is that it is the divine expression of God's will and thoughts and intentions. The divine expression of all that God is. His eternality. His being the agent of creation. All things have their origin in Jesus, it says. He has the power to give and sustain all life. He animates and he sustains. But he also illuminates. Not only shows people who God is, but who they are as well. The nature of all reality. They see who God is and they be able to see who each other is. It gives us consciousness and awareness. The Logos is not overcome by anything either. He's infinitely powerful. But it also says here the Word of God is God. Not just an agent of God. Not just His voice like my voice coming out of my body. But the very essence of who God is. He says here at the very end of it, the Logos is God. God made known. And that's amazing. But thirdly, the disciples, especially John here as he writes experience the word of God in such a way that they experience it in the person of Jesus. I love how it says here, we have seen him. It, Jesus is not an abstract idea. Jesus is not some sort of you know, concept. He's not some sort of like idealized superhuman that's out there. No, he was a real flesh and bones person who ate and drank and walked and was experienced he's not abstract or an imagination he's not a myth but something that was experienced and witnessed and remembered jesus the divine expression of of god became human and dwelled among us isn't that amazing think about it for a moment the god of all things who made mountains and trees and, and, and platypuses and ostriches, which is just divine imagination, if you ask me. I don't know why you would ever make an ostrich. That's the ugliest bird I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> but the God of all of those things comes down into one focal point, the person of Jesus Christ, and dwelled among people. The President of the United States would never come and just hang out with average folks for a meal for the heck of it. But God in his infinite mercy and love said, I think it sounds like a great idea. And he come and hung out with thousands of people, especially poured his life into 12, even in even more concentration with three. All that John wrote about is something out of his own experience, not a mythology. It came from his time in the presence of God in Jesus. It was an act of self-revelation of God to people, uh, to people to invite all of humanity to come and know God in the same way that John did. I love the word here. He says he dwelled or dwelt with us. It follows this Old Testament pattern of the Spirit of God in the tabernacle, providing communion and protection. God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. How does that work for us, though? Clearly, we're not the 12. Well, we're close in number, but clearly we're not, uh, we weren't there in history to witness Jesus. Now we have the Gospels and we have the writings. Clearly we have good evidence that this, was, this happened. But Jesus didn't just come for the 12 or the 3 or the 5,000 or however many it was. He came for all humanity. So what does it mean for you and I? I think what God is saying here in this dense passage is that he, want, he is inviting us to know him like John experienced him. God is inviting you and I to know him like John knew, know, or knew him. 
Let me just say this. The core of Christianity is not a set of moral teachings or behavioral mandates, do's and don'ts and this and that and you can and cannot. Rather, it's that God became human and dwelled among people. He died in our place. He expressed what love really is and gave his life up for his friends. And now he invites you and I to be reconciled to himself in a restored relationship between creator and created. Think about this for a moment. It's profound. The God of the universe became flesh and dwelled among people. Joan Osborne in the 90s wrote a song. Maybe you've heard it. What if God was one of us? You've probably heard it. You know, just a slob like one of us, he says, she says, which I think is weird, but okay. You know, riding on a bus. Okay, sure, I guess. But there's always this idea that God doesn't know what's going on. He's some sort of out there thing. He's some sort of abstract idea. But John is telling us here that God is became one of us. God in Jesus, the logos of God, the divine expression, may, has made God relatable and knowable. You and I can know God. Think of that for a moment. I may not be able to know calculus, but I can know God. I may not be able to understand anything about Java code or JavaScript, if you're a nerd. Uh, I may not know, be able to know anything about how to replace glass windshields, but I can know God because God has made himself knowable through Jesus. See, Jesus has removed the barrier to God and caused, uh, caused by our own rebellion and has opened himself to be known and experienced by all people everywhere, including you. It's almost as if God himself is like this library and he's opened him the doors and said, anybody who wants to know anything about me, come on in. There are no barriers anymore for us to know, for us to know God except for our own willingness. Jesus has made God known. Jesus answers the question, what is God like? God is like Jesus. If you ever want to know what God is like, God is like Jesus. See, because Jesus reveals the nature of God. Like I said, God is made known through Jesus. Jesus reveals that God is personable. God is not some sort of ethereal blob of energy out there just kind of floating around in the, in the nexus of the universe, you know. He, he, he's not like that. He's like Jesus. He's relatable. He's a person. He's not a force. Star Wars got it wrong on many things, but he's not a force. He's a person. And Jesus reveals that. Jesus reveals that God is relational. He came to reconcile people, not to reject them. Jesus reveals that God is graceful and loving. He came to redeem people. God is love, as the apostle says in 1 John. Jesus also reveals that God is eternal and creative and the ultimate power in the universe. And we can have a part in that. We can, have, we can experience that because of Jesus. When Jesus reveals the real, Jesus uncovers the na- true nature of reality who God is, how creation came to be, the nature of humanity, how we relate to it all, and our purpose in this world. Jesus is both truth and grace in one person. Jesus has come to make God known and give us the light of illumination so that we can see properly the world in which God has made. Jesus reveals all that. Jesus revealed or came so that humanity could receive and experience God's grace. 
Now, we've talked, we've talked before uh, about the nature of salvation and all of that, but let's just put it this way. God's grace, his ultimate favor, his bestowing of his love on you and me and all the people that are not here, that are in the parking lot or at Dutch Brothers or over at the Thrift Mart or McDonald's across the street, God himself is bestowing grace on them because of Jesus. You see, God's grace gives people a renewed beauty, a quality that is attractive and gives joy. When God gives us his grace, he renews in us this, our, our true humanity. He gives and implants in us this ability to be beautiful again. We were all kind of broken and messed up when, before we met Jesus. And then when Jesus comes to us and, he receive, and we receive his grace, he says, you are beautiful. You... I give you my divine favor and my divine value. You are no longer just broken people walking along in darkness. You are now uh, uh, redeemed people in the light. But God's grace also bestows on us his eternal favor and love. This is the goodwill and expression of generosity. His absolute act of, of his own will to receive you and I no longer as enemies but as family. And with God... The door is always open and the food is always warm. We can always go to our Father. It says in Hebrews that we should approach the throne of grace without fear. We can just go and crawl in the lap of God and go, I'm here. And he's like, I'm so glad. God is like the prodigal son's father who instead of waiting for the son to come, he goes and runs after him as he's coming home and tackles him and kisses him and throws the best clothing on him and says, let's party. That's what God is like because that's what Jesus was like. God's grace gives out lavish gifts and benefits to you and I. Not only eternal life in terms of you know, our eternality and about uh, you know, heaven and resurrection and all that stuff, but God gives us this quality of life uh, with him that we cannot get anywhere else. He gives us deep community. In this room, we experience that with one another, not only in our high of highs and our joys, but also in our griefs and our sadnesses and our sicknesses. God binds us together with cords of love that are the same ones that bind the Trinity together. He gives us purpose, meaning in this life. He gives us telos. He gives us a reason to exist. He gives us joy, not just happiness, but this deep sense of peace and okayness that things are going to be all right. The ability to endure hard things. The ability to rejoice with others. The ability to sit with people in pain. It gives us the ability to know God. I mean, my goodness. You can go to anywhere in the scriptures and learn a little bit more about God every day. And it, God willingly gives that to us. He wants us to know him. And then he gives us with communion with his spirit. I love that it says that the spirit of God, Jesus has given it to us, that he resides in us in the same way that the spirit of God resided in the temple for the Jews. We have become living temples. And God is just crying out going, hey, would you like to know more? Would you like to know me? God's grace then also results in our own gratitude and thankfulness. Now, I understand that, it, that this may sound fantastical to you and I. And granted, there are some issues with all of this. Many of us have been Christians for a very long time. I know that I've been a believer since 1990. Of course, I grew up in the Catholic Church, so let's go all the way back, okay? So 49 years of being familiar with Jesus can breed a little contempt. Can breed familiarity with Jesus. So we think we know everything. And we're like, meh, I have other things to do. 
you know, watching the hundredth episode of Diners, Drive-ins, and Dives seems a whole lot more interesting right now than you know spending time with Jesus or my lawnmower needs to be fixed or whatever it happens to be. We we tend to go, I've got this Jesus thing down, but Jesus is a wellspring that never runs dry. He's the deepest of deep pools that no one can ever plumb the depths of. Jesus is the va- the knowledge of God is vaster than the universe itself and it's continuing expanding expanding and we cannot ever know enough about God and yet we sometimes we just think we know enough and we're content with that. So what's our response to this dense passage? I think God is calling you and I just to dwell with him. Oftentimes we think that maybe I just don't know enough about God. And if I just, you know, go to school or I do a Bible study or whatever, I can just fill that knowledge part of my brain and then suddenly I'll be okay. But God doesn't necessarily think that's a bad thing. But he wants us to be with each other more than anything. Similarly, I mean, I can sit down with you guys and you can tell me all about your life and all the bullet points that made you you. But if I don't spend time with you, I don't get to know you, not intellectually, but experientially, relationally, in the same way God wants us, through his spirit, to dwell with him, because he dwells with us. God is already there. In the same sense, we ought to learn to walk with Jesus before we walk like Jesus. Many of us want just to take Sermon on the Mount and all the other awesome things and go, I'm not going to go do that. No, Jesus says, follow me. Hitch yourself to me. Yoke yourself with me. Sit in the passenger seat with me. Be with Jesus. To dwell with God who dwells with us, we must learn to be with Jesus. This is our first and foremost um, uh, essential for being a follower of God. Because Jesus is with us now, it makes it we can be with him in all things. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to dwell with us so that we can be with Jesus always. We must learn to be with him. Now, you might go, well, that's great. I'm ready, Jake. How do we get to be with Jesus? What's the step? I'm ready to go. Give me the five points. Well, I'm going to disappoint you. I only have three. Um, The way that we dwell with Jesus is very simple. We must learn to quiet our hearts. We must learn to to, uh, get into the methods that he gives us to be with him. Here's one. Scripture. And you're like, oh, duh. Well, yeah, it's the word of God is right here in front of us. God has allowed himself to be known through the pages of Scripture. Both Old and New Testaments educate us about who God is and gives us the best image of what God is like. When we read the gospel accounts, we learn about Jesus. When we read the Old Testament, when we read how God rescued uh, Israel from uh, out of Egypt, we learn what kind of God this really is. He grounds us in his reality when we read the scriptures. So we can dwell with God when we invest ourselves in time in the scriptures. But secondly, when we dwell with God, the Holy Spirit. God, by his spirit, has taken up residence in you. Whether you notice it or not, whether you feel it or not, God is there. And you got to be great. Great. So everywhere I go, God is with me. Yes. And he's speaking to you continually. God, by his spirit, has taken up residence in your hearts in the same way that he did in the Old Testament. So when you go into your quiet places or when you come to worship or when you sit at the table with one another and eat donuts, we are with God. 
We are with his spirit. We have access to his presence at all times. This is why we can just sit in quiet and silence and solitude and actually not be alone. It's because we, he is already with us. And this is where, like I said, the practice of silence and quiet before God can help us dwell in his presence. I have to tell you that one of my favorite quotes of all time was Mother Teresa being, in, uh, being uh, interviewed by Dan Rather um, way back in the day. And uh, he was talking to her about prayer. He says, so when you pray, uh, tell me what that's like. And she says, why listen to God? And Dan Rather, being a good journalist, goes, well, what does he say? She says, well, he listens to me. And she says, and if you can't understand that, you don't know anything about prayer. And I used to think that was weird. But I have to tell you that in my times with God in silence lately, it's been just that. I've been listening to God, and he's been listening to me. It's like this holy staring contest. But not one that where you're trying to win, but you're just kind of going... It's like me staring at the mountains. You're just there. That's the kind of thing that God wants us to do, to be with him. But lastly, not only we have scripture, we have the presence with the Holy Spirit, but also we have community. When we gather like this, either because we're eating together like we do at our potluck, or when we share communion together, or when we share each other's donuts, when we're just sitting here before church or after church or whatever, Community of the followers of Jesus is another way that we experience Jesus himself. He calls us the body of Christ, correct? Right? So when we're all together, we are experiencing the love and presence of God. That's why it's so important for us to meet continually. Not because it checks off religious checkbox, but simply because uh, it's where we meet God. If you notice John's statement here, he says, we have seen him. Who? We. The community of believers. The 12. Dwelling with Jesus occurs when we gather together in worship for fellowship, to eat, to pray, to cry, to laugh. Dwelling with God is a community event. Not only can we do it by ourselves, but also when we meet together. That's why it's important. So the result is this. When we uh, first and foremost orient our lives to be with Jesus, we become lovers of God. And then we see ourselves more clearly and all of our peccadillos and sinfulness. And yet we experience his love and grace. And that God himself has received us into his presence with all of our faults and all of your faults. And he makes us more human. He makes us what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be the people of God. And he makes us that. And when we receive God's favor, we are transformed into the people who look a lot like Jesus. So the purpose of John's gospel here is to ground us in a true reality of what the nature of reality is, who God is, who we are, and how we become more like Jesus. And as a church, and as the church, as part of God's kingdom people, this is what we ought to be known for, that we can be a people of humans who can dwell with God. So your mission, our mission as a church, is to be be known as Jesus' people, not as rule keepers, not as regulation makers, but the people who dwell with their God. We dwell with Jesus. That is the one and only thing that we ought to be known for. Yes, avoid sin. More than anything, hang out with Jesus. I was doing an interview with a a magazine that, uh, I guess a local magazine wanted to know who I was, which is weird because not much of anybody 
for that matter. But they were asking at the very end of the interview, who other some other people you really care or that would be interested in, in, in doing an interview like this. And I said, my buddy Kevin. And they says, why should we get to know Kevin? I said, because Kevin looks like Jesus. So my buddy Kevin knows Jesus. And whenever I'm around him, I experience Jesus. That's the kind of people we need to become this year. So when people ask, well, what's Cindy like? Cindy's like Jesus. That sounds great. What's Bill like? Hi, Bill. Bill's like Jesus. He's gotten to know people. We have become people who have gotten to know Jesus in such a way that we have become his grace upon grace and joy upon joy. We reflect who he is. So that's what I want us to be as a church. If people want to ask us, what's Harvest like? Well, they're like Jesus. Man, if, if that's what people thought of us, that would be awesome. I could care less if we had any more people in this room, but that they knew that this is where you come to meet people who are like Jesus. Well, this is God's word. I hope that it's been meaningful to you in some way. Why don't we... Uh...